0: Our topic this morning, love and hate, light and darkness. Love and hate, light and darkness from 1 John 2, 7 to 11. Let me read it. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. And here's our main topic, although we'll cover the context. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, abideth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Now, one of the great themes of 1 John is a topic of how do I know I am a true believer? How do I know I'm a genuine Christian? How do I know I'm regenerate? How do I know that I'm walking with God? This theme is important for a few reasons. One is that the Gnostics, which is one of the main heretical groups that John had to deal with in his day, the Gnostics, viewed religion as kind of an intellectual enterprise that did not necessarily affect one's life. They did not see any need to keep God's commandments, and they did not see any need to exercise love to other Christians. It was all intellectual. It was all up in the head. It didn't affect the life. Everything was intellectual. For them, Christianity was purely an intellectual affair, a philosophical matter. Well, we do not have any gnostics in our day. <clears throat> we do have a great problem with antinomianism. In evangelical circles, the leaven of the dispensational heresy is still quite strong. They teach what has been come to be called easy believism or the idea that justification and redemption does not need to be accompanied by all the other saving graces, which is what our Confession of Faith teaches. They deny the biblical requirement of repentance and sanctification because they wrongly believe that to insist on these things is a denial of salvation by grace alone. That's why it's always crystal super important to make a distinction between justification, which is solely by faith alone, not by the works of the law at all, and sanctification, which is a process in which the the believer has to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in him as it applies the word of God to his heart and has to die daily, has to put off sin daily, has to grow in grace in the knowledge of Christ. The Bible, however, teaches that we are justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law, but once we are justified, we are required We are required to pick up our cross daily and follow Christ in a life of separation from the world, a life of sanctification, a life of imitation of Christ, a life of following him daily. Not self, not ego, not the flesh, not sin. This teaching on love is also important in our day for professing Christians can be very unloving in their behavior to each other. Sad to say it's true, and it's a terrible witness to the world because the world should look at our love for each other and say, there's something going on there that I need to know about. There's something going on there that is true, that's real, that we don't have. But when Christians act like the heathen, when Christians treat each other poorly, they do not shine forth the light of Christ. Professing Christians can be unforgiving. Gossipy, backbiting, petty, uncharitable, selfish, and unkind. If professed Christians cannot get along and do not treat each other with love, <clears throat> then the world will take notice. And the preaching of the gospel will suffer. Why should I believe what you say about the resurrection and the cross of Christ when you live like a heathen? Today, so many churches are like the world, and are a basket case, ethically, that they are not being a salt and light to our pagan culture. They're not, because they've syncretized with the culture. They're imitating the culture. They're compromising the faith, so they can be more acceptable to the world. That's a terrible thing. Now before we examine this section of scripture in detail, there are a few introductory matters to consider first. John addresses the Christians as beloved. This word here, agapitos, occurs 61 times in the New Testament, 10 of which are in the Johannine epistles. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used at times to translate yahid, which means uniquely beloved. Somebody who's specially loved. And this was the designation that applied to a special son in the Old Testament, such as Isaac. This background is reflected in the synoptic use of agapitor for Jesus as God's beloved son. He's the beloved son, he's the uniquely loved son of God. God's love for him is unique, it's special. See Mark 11 and nine seven. <clears throat> In the Greek Old Testament it is an adjective used to describe God's beloved people. Jeremiah six twenty six and thirty one, Psalm sixty verse seven, one hundred and eight 127, verse two, etc. This covenant designation is carried over to the New Testament epistles, where Christians are called God's beloved, called saints, Romans 1, seven. Christians are beloved because God loved them. Not because they were lovely, not because they deserved love, not because they were intrinsically uh, lovable, but because of God's mercy and grace in Christ. This love and mercy that comes to us through Christ is the background of our passage here. This love of God through Christ is made explicit in 1 John 4.11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we in turn ought to love one another. In other words, how dare you not love your Christian brother? You are God's enemy. You are a wicked, rotten, vile sinner. And God had mercy on you and God loved you and God showed his compassion toward you. How dare you not show love and compassion toward his people? To not love our brother is it a very sense to deny the gospel by our behavior. God did not love us because we were lovely or worthy of love. We were the opposite of that. We were God's enemies when Christ died for us. Believers must learn to love other Christians for objective theological reasons, not because of subjective feelings or preferences you're not going to have warm, tender feelings toward every Christian you meet. That's just the way it is. But you have to love every single one of them for God commands it. And then second, the command to love follows upon the need to keep the commandments of God. (coughs) John has just declared that the proof that someone is a genuine Christian is that he keeps and delights in keeping, and continues to keep the commandments of the Lord. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. The test of whether we are a real Christian is not how exciting of an emotional experience we had when we first believed. It's not whether we went to the front of the church and signed a card, or prayed a a special prayer, in the so-called altar call, which all is unbiblical. It is ethical. It is ethical. Are you keeping the moral commandments of God in the Old and New Testament? The only safe test is keeping God's commandments or what the Old Testament calls covenant faithfulness. I brought you out of Egypt. I've saved you. I've delivered you from bondage. I've delivered you from a cruel, tyrannical slavery. I've brought you to the mountain. I've given you my moral law, my holy law. Now show me you love me by keeping my commandments. Covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. The teaching from the New Testament is really not hardly different from the Old Testament at all. The major difference is, is that Christ has come. We have a greater refusion of the Holy Spirit. There's a greater. Uh, we have less of an excuse to not obey than Israel. We should be more obedient. We should be more faithful. And of course, Jeremiah 31 says we will be. If you're a Christian, while we do not perfectly keep God's law because of our flesh, and First John says, if you say you're without sin, you call God a liar. Because of our flesh, the old man, the man of sin, the body of death that still influences us. Nevertheless, there is an objective test of whether we are really saved. Proof of spiritual life is the habitual keeping of God's covenant law. So examine yourself. Do you love the law? Are you studying the law? Are you praying for God to help you keep the law? When you do break the law, do you confess it? Are you sorry for your sin? Do you repent of your sin? Or do you make excuses? Oh, well, this is okay for me to break this law because A, B, C, and D. Or are you sorry and do you confess it and repent? In addition to a habitual keeping of God's law is the requirement to walk as Jesus walked. 1 John 2, 5b-6 <clears throat> This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. Jesus was the perfect keeper of the law. And he was the perfect example of Christian love. So this is a perfect transitional verse between keeping the commandments of God and are you loving the brethren. We're in a series of these are tests. How do you know whether you're really a Christian? How do you know whether you have a true profession of faith? How do you know if you really are walking with God? How do you know if your faith is real, if you're really regenerated? You keep the commandments of God. You walk as Jesus walked. You imitate Christ in your life, and of course, we'll see you have to love the brethren. How do we know? that we have a real, intimate fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. We must walk as Jesus walked. We must imitate the supreme holy life of love that our Lord lived when he lived on this earth. The Savior was the supreme example of keeping God's law and of serving and caring for God's people. He placed the needs of others above his own needs. He lived to serve the church. He lived a selfless life, a non-egotistical life, a life characterized by doing good to others, not the typical evangelical attitude today, what's in it for me? Tell me about your programs. What's in it for me? What can I get out of this? As if church is simply a, a, a Hollywood show or a rock concert or something. What's in it for me? No, he didn't have that attitude. It was the exact opposite. How can I serve? How can I love the brethren? How can I help? Love is serving the brethren. Love is being compassionate and merciful to the brethren. Many professing Christians have an attitude toward the local church of, what's in it for me? What programs do they have for my entertainment? To make me feel good. To serve my desires. Well, with absolutely no concern for, how can I help? How can I be an example to other Christians? How can I help other Christians be better Christians? How can I work for the sanctification of the body? Instead, it's an attitude of supreme selfishness. What's in it for me? And I don't like it here. I'm out of here because my needs aren't being met. That is the spirit of the world. Well, obviously, we ought to attend a church where biblical worship, solid reformed doctrine, and biblical preaching is the norm. Well, that's true. We do not go to church to be mere spectators. The church is the body of Christ, of people called out to be holy, to serve Christ, saved unto good works, saved to obey the law, saved for a life of sanctification, saved for a life of service to other believers, saved to wash other people's feet, figuratively speaking. Jesus said, let me show you the supreme example of what I want you to be. And it wasn't selfish. It was, sit down, I'm going to wash your feet, your filthy feet. That's the supreme example. Not, what's in it for me? I'm out of here. We are to love the brethren as Jesus did. We are to serve others. Service to others. What can I do to help? We are to be forgiving. We are to do what we can so others will grow in grace and will better follow Christ. There's nothing more sickening and hypocritical and somebody who not, does nothing but criticize and offer no solutions. What can I do? There's a problem here. What can I do to help us solve this problem? Instead of, there's a problem here. Bye. I'm out of here. I'm going to go find a church with a better rock band. No. A Christian says, there's a problem here. What can I do to help? What can I do to make this situation better? We're to seek peace and reconciliation and not give up on weak sheep or the little lambs who struggle. If we do not seek to love the brethren as Christ loved them, then we are not true Christians. What did Jesus say in that Matthew 18? If there's a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost and he's way over on a cliff somewhere in a crack. The shepherd's not going to be satisfied until that sheep is retrieved. He's going to do what he can to retrieve that sheep. It's not too bad for the sheep, man. Let's have a party and say goodbye. People who leave congregations for selfish, egotistical reasons are unloving and are not exhibiting the traits of a real believer. There are times when it's, you know, if your church is engaging in some gross worship corruptions, and you've gone to the session, and you've talked to them, and they told you to pound sand, and they're saying, we're committed to syncretism. They're not going to say this, but this is what they mean. We're committed to syncretism. We're committed to uh, breaking uh, commandments related to worship. We're committed to that, and we're not going to change so just too bad, that you have a legitimate reason to seek a transfer to a better church. But you don't have a legitimate reason to leave because of a personality difference or some selfish, stupid thing about the potluck dinner or something. John's epistle provides us with a very wonderful test On our profession, whether it is true and solid or false and hypocritical. Are we keeping the commandments of God? Are you keeping the Sabbath? Are you skipping church for non legitimate reasons? Are you skipping church when you're truly sick? Or are you skipping church because you don't feel like being there? Are you lying to your neighbor? Are you a gossip? Are you a grumbler? Are you keeping the commandments of God? Are you loving the brethren? Even people you may not like personally, you may may not want to hang out with, but they've been saved by God. They're Christ's sheep. Are you loving them? Are you compassionate toward them? Are you forgiving toward them? Are you willing to overlook the minor rubs and offenses in the name of love, in the name of Christ, or are you harsh and resentful, a grumbler? Are we imitating Christ in his love, service, and mercy toward the church? Are you? Are we doing that? Take this test. Apply it to yourself. Be honest with yourself if you are sitting at home when you ought to be in church because you do not love the brethren and you're unforgiving and you're backbiting, then it is time for you to repent and see what you can do to help, to serve, to extend the love of Christ, to be compassionate rather than selfish, egotistical. Christianity has ethical and social effects Where the effects are absent, true faith is absent. And then we'll look at an old yet new commandment. The way John begins this is fascinating. John begins this section by reminding the believers that this command is not new. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye have had from the beginning. The old commandment is that which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. The darkness is past, the true light now shineth. John uses I and you, indicating his special authority as an apostle. The commandment is not new, For it is found in both the law of Moses and, of course, in the teaching of Jesus Christ. In Leviticus 19.18, God instituted, instructed the covenant people to love their neighbor as themselves. The Jews and Christians had been taught the importance of loving one's neighbor. And Jesus told us that the term neighbor applied even to the non-Jew. You have to love your neighbor, even if he's a Samaritan. You have to love your neighbor even if he's a Gentile. You have to love your neighbor even if he's a non-Christian. Treat him lawfully. Treat him with kindness. Treat him with compassion. While the command to love one's neighbor is a fundamental aspect of the law, the background of our verse comes from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. The command that this is not new is none other than Christ's law of love for his disciples. Listen to what Christ said in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then earlier in John 13, 34, our Lord used this expression. Listen to this. A new commandment I give unto you. So John is alluding to this. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. John is saying, look, I'm going to tell you something that you already know, that you've already heard, that you've already been taught. It's nothing new here. From the first time you have heard or read the gospel, you have heard this particular doctrine emphasized by Christ himself. This necessity, this absolute necessity of loving one another. This is an old commandment. It is an essential teaching on what it means to be a true Christian, to live as a Christian, to act as a Christian, to love as a Christian. <coughs> an integral teaching of Christ is the conception of the church as the family of God with the members loving each other. This teaching of loving each other recurs six times in our epistle in its five chapters. So it's a main theme of the epistle of 1 John. John is saying this is a well-known rule. It needs no detailed explanation. This is a foundational teaching of Christianity. You have to love other Christians. You have to love the other people in the church. You have to love the brethren. And you have to do it as Christ did it. The obligation to walk as he walked, noted in the last verse, both implies and leads up to the old yet new commandment of verse 7 and 8, which is explicated in verses 9 to 11. this command has continually been in force since the beginning of history. Yet with the incarnation, the example of Jesus Christ, and his perfect redemption, the perfect example of love in history, the only perfect example of true love in history, <clears throat> he was willing to die for his enemies. Is in a sense new. Because of Christ. It is in a sense new It is relevant. It is fresh. Look at what Christ did. Look at what Christ did. If you claim to be a Christian and you don't act like that, if you don't treat your brethren like that, you're nothing but a rotten hypocrite. You're nothing but a big phony. You're unregenerate. You're not saved. You're not going to heaven. You're a big lying phony because you don't love the brethren. And you were saved to imitate Christ. And the fundamental teaching of Christ in the Gospels is you have to love each other. He showed us what it means to love the brethren. He showed us what true love involves, biblical love. He taught us how to love. He revealed the divine intent and purpose of this crucial law. Christ did. It is noteworthy that John writing under divine inspiration, equates the commandment of Jesus with the Old Testament law. You know, as I've noted before in other sermons, I mean, the divinity of Christ is written all throughout the Bible. It's written everywhere. It's presupposed by the apostles everywhere. (coughs) Now, it may be asked, why does Jesus, excuse me, it may be asked, why does John Deny the newness of this law. Well, one reason is that it adds weight, it adds authority to the command in opposition to the secessionists who had not loved the brethren and had left the congregation. These Gnostic types, these intellectuals who didn't have any love, but they were very intellectual, they left. They weren't excommunicated. Well, they, obviously they would be after they left, but they weren't kicked out of the church. They told the church, we're, we're, we, you guys aren't good enough for us. You're not good enough for us. We're out of here. You're not intellectual enough for us. You're not, you don't have the true knowledge like we do. We're out of here. So it adds authority. It adds weight in opposition to the secessionists who had not loved the brethren and they had departed. They could not claim that John was writing on his own and John could argue that those who left were not walking as Christ walked. They went out from us because they were not of us. And how do we know they were not of us? Well, they don't walk as Christ walked. Christ was forgiving. Christ was compassionate. Christ, if he went to church, he would go to church, what can I do to help you guys? Oh, you have a problem here. What can I do to help you solve this problem? Not go home and gossip and bicker and grumble and talk about how rotten the church is and then leave. Christ wouldn't do that. Christ would say, what can I do to help? What can we do to solve this problem? What can we do to love each other better and communicate more effectively with each other? That's what Christ would do. The Gnostics didn't do that. They said, forget you guys. We're out of here. You're not intellectual enough for us. We're the true intellects around here. It is also theological. In... The Lord Jesus Christ, we see love fully carried out, fully carried out. The Lord Jesus has fulfilled the law in exhaustive detail. He loved men and women in the sense that the Old Testament law designed, and he did it perfectly. A perfect example of love. A perfect example of covenant faithfulness. A perfect example of obedience to the law. A perfect example of love, forgiveness, and compassion toward the sheep. That's Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to do. Now, as we consider this command, it is important to note that unlike Leviticus 19.18, which speaks of love to all men, this is speaking of a special love between Christians. Yes, we're to love all men. We're to treat all men lawfully. We're to be kind and compassionate to all men. But with Christians, there's a special love. One cannot expect an unregenerate man to love as Christ loved. To ask him to do that would be absurd. For he cannot be subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. The term brother has a special, specific meaning in John's vocabulary. It's somebody specially loved. He is not speaking generally of a human brotherhood, as the liberal commentators like to say. It is not a synonym with the neighbor in the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, although that's absolutely true and we have to love the the non-Christian. It refers specifically to those who profess Christ. It refers specifically to Christians, to those in the church. The selfless, self-sacrificial love of Christ is something the world cannot know. You can't know it. And that's why John is saying, this is how you know somebody's regenerate or not. Because the world can't do this. The world can't get along with Christians. The world can't love Christians in a special way. The, the world can't love and be forgiving and compassionate toward Christians. It can't. It's the world. It's in darkness. It walks in darkness. That's its realm of influence. It can't do it. This is for Christians. It is a foolish and nonsensical thing to expect unbelievers to understand or practice Christian ethics. Now, if you have a Christian nation, obviously all your ethics are incorporated into the law, the criminal law, and they're punished for what they do. And they have to keep in line or they'll have to experience the sword of the state. But uh, you can't expect an unbeliever to understand spiritual truth and act upon it. They don't do that. Only Christians who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit and have received a new life in Christ can fathom or practice Christian love. The new commandment is for believers. It is an exhortation to Christians to love one another. Jesus, through his person and redemptive work, has brought us into this world, has brought into this world a new order of life, a new kingdom of grace. He has introduced light into the realm of darkness. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Becoming a Christian (coughs) changes everything in our lives. (coughs) New friends, new way of thinking, new way you view God, new way you view the Bible, new way you view the law. You don't hang out with the old crowd anymore. You want to be in church. You want to obey the Sabbath. You want to be with God's people. You want to be at, at the fellowship meal. You want to be at the prayer meeting. You want to experience that Christian love. Cuz there's a new heart. Becoming Christian changes everything. We no longer live for self. We no longer do what we want to do. We no longer follow human autonomy but we live for others, especially those of the household of faith. The attitude is, what can I do to help? How can I help this be a better church? How can I help my brothers be more faithful to Christ? Not gossip, not slander, not grumbling, not hatred, but love. Pretty simple. Pretty simple teaching. We see this point explicitly in the explanation of 8b. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Because Christ has entered this world and conquered Satan, sin, and death, the darkness is being progressively conquered. Gentiles are hearing the gospel. The gospel is going to all the nations. Gentiles are embracing Christ and stepping away from paganism in a life of selfishness, self-centeredness, and worldliness. It's no longer, oh, it's Sunday. It's time for the Green Bay Packers, or it's time to go to the beach. No, it's time to be with God's people, and hear biblical preaching, and have true corporate worship together as God's people. They have put off the old man and put on the new and thus they love for Christ and they live for Christ and they live and love the church they don't live for self. The true light is shining. It's gaining ground. The beams of light or the efficacy of Jesus' redemptive work is transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Step by step You're understanding the word better. Step by step you're growing in the knowledge of Christ. Step by step you're learning to be more and more like Christ. Step by step you're learning to obey God's law better and apply it more effectively to your life. There is a progressive sanctification where we want to serve and love other Christians. And this is how we can tell if we are genuine Christians. Are you living to serve? Are you living to love? Are you living to obey or are you living for self? Are you living for human autonomy? Are you living to satisfy your own selfish needs instead of the needs of the church? The present continuous tense is used, indicating that this process of light diffusing the darkness continues even to our day and moves forward. The ideal, sanctified state of things has already begun and continues to grow. Note that Jesus, the gospel, and its effects in history, is called the true light as opposed to the spurious. The true light has come. The enlightenment offered by the Gnostics and the Greek philosophers is false, spurious, counterfeit. It is darkness masquerading as light. It is counterfeit light. It cannot save. It cannot sanctify. It cannot bring true love. The philosophies of the world do not lead one into true love or sanctification at all. They lead away from Christ. It's men acting autonomously, running away from the truth. The presence of evil, ignorance, suffering, and satanic delusion will always be present when Jesus Christ and his gospel truth is absent. Remember that. Remember that. And then that brings us up to our text, Light and Darkness. John picks up on his comment upon the true light, already shining, and then sets up a contrast in the next verses. Light and darkness, love and hatred, walking and stumbling. let me read 9 to 11. He that saith he's in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness has blinded his eyes. So, John begins by speaking of those who say they are in the light. They claim to be Christians. They profess to be regenerated and to have faith in Jesus. They think they're saved. They think they're justified. They think they're in Christ. He has spoken earlier of those who say or believe they have fellowship with God, 1 John 1 6. Or the man who says he knows God, 1 John 2 4, but does not. His life does not match or support his profession because he does not keep the commandments of God. He does not walk as Christ walked. He does not love the brethren. Very simple tests. This is not rocket science. It's very simple. You should be examining yourself. What is your attitude toward the church of Christ? What is your attitude toward the people in the church? Is it, get away from me? I don't like you. Don't talk to me. The moment church is done, I'm out of here. I don't want to talk to you guys. I don't want to be part of the fellowship. Or is it, I love you. What can I do to help you? What can I do to help this church? What can I do to increase the fellowship and the bond of God's people? There are many people who join themselves to the church for the wrong reasons. They make a verbal profession. That may be quite orthodox. I've seen people come and go for 30, 40 years. Come and go. They come and go. It reminds me of that song, Another One Bites the Dust. But there's something seriously wrong. They say all the right things to become church members, but there's something seriously wrong. The session allows them in because what they, uh, their profession appears to be credible, given what they know. But over time, the truth regarding their tr- their spiritual state inevitably expresses itself in outward conduct. The truth comes out. There's a disregard for the Sabbath, and the church is missed for frivolous, inexcusable reasons. There's a disregard for the ministries of the church, such as prayer meetings and fellowship meals. They're abandoned for no good reason at all, other than selfishness and the sinful ego. They had fellowship meals in the New Testament period. They were called love feasts. Why would you not want to be with other Christians in fellowship with them? It's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be at home watching TV. You're not supposed to be out hiking. You're not supposed to be going to the beach and surfing or scuba diving or skydiving or whatever you want to do. You're supposed to be with God's people. You're supposed to be hearing public worship. Yes, you go home after church and you have family worship and you, do, and you can read and do things. But why aren't you in church? What's wrong? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you in church? Why aren't you at the prayer meeting? Why aren't you at the fellowship meal? What's wrong? Is it that you lack the love of God's people? That you cannot imitate Christ? He'd be there. There's a disregard of lawful covenant vows because self and sin is placed above the church of Christ. There's a disregard for the brethren and that grudges are held. Forgiveness is not extended. Fellowship is avoided. And grumbling and complaining over every little thing becomes the norm. Minor faults and offenses are magnified and not overlooked in love. Sins that have been repented of are not forgotten or forgiven. They're brought up even years after the thing happened. Love doesn't do that. Christian love doesn't do that. Can you imagine if Christ did that to us? We wouldn't have a chance because we're sinners. We need Christ's forgiveness. Remember what a man really believes will eventually come out in his conduct. He says he loves the brethren. He claims to be loving like Christ, but he acts like a pagan, like a man of darkness. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied thy name and done many wonderful works in thy name? And he will say, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. True love obeys the law of God. True love keeps one's covenant vows. True love regards other Christians as more important than self. It does. True love wants to serve rather than be served. True love does not hold grudges. It does not refuse to overlook small offenses. The minor rubs that occur and perceived wrongs. If you're in a group of people that are sinners, and Christians are redeemed sinners... You're going to have minor rubs. You're going to have personality differences. You're going to have people that you wouldn't hang out with normally. You're going to have people that may be very different than you. You may have people that are old who listen to uh, old dance music from the 40s. You may have all different kinds of people together. You have to learn to overlook those small rubs and offenses in love. You have to learn to be forgiving and communicate and speak the truth in love. You have to learn to have compassion and love toward each other or you'll never get along. And the church will be a miserable place. And it will not shine the light of Christ to the world. True love is always seeking peace, fellowship, reconciliation, and the greater good of the body of Christ. True love, as Paul says, does not seek its own. It's not selfish. It's not what's in it for me. It's what can I do for you. You know, when people gossip, I mean, gossip is one of the clearest examples of hatred, If you really love that person and they did something wrong, go talk to them. Tell them to their face. Pray for them. Help them repent. If you're just ripping them behind their back, you're not doing anybody any good. You're nothing but a phony. True love is kind, compassionate, merciful, like Christ. True love walks as Christ walked. True love loves as Christ loved. Read the Gospels. The apostles were not even close to being perfect. Sometimes they looked like bumbling idiots. And Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith. Peter denied Christ three times with curses. They were egotistical. And yet Christ loved them, and he served them, and he worked with them, and they became the greatest preachers in history. The design of the gospel is to spread Christian love between Jew and Gentile, poor and rich, slave and free, old and young. As Christ has loved us and extended mercy to us, so we must do also to his sheep. The spirit of those who are judgmental, unforgiving, and reject fellowship is totally antithetical to the purpose of the gospel. The test of whether or not we belong to the kingdom of light is answered by our behavior in the matter of love to the brethren. Do you really love the brethren? Are you there for them? Are you at, is your rear end in church when it ought to be? Are you at the fellowship meal when you ought to be speaking, getting to know each other, so we can help each other and pray for each other more intelligently? Are you at the prayer meeting? If you're not, why not? What's so important that you can't pray for 10, 15 minutes with a group of people? What's so important that you can't be at a prayer meeting? Is it the NFL? It's certainly not as sanctifying probably as being at the prayer meeting. Let us love each other. Let us be committed to the Church of Christ. For Christ's sake, because we love Christ. Because we want to imitate Christ. What would Christ do? He'd be there. You proclaim and you portray exactly who you are, who you really are, by your conduct in this area. If you are not loving your brother, no matter what you say or how orthodox your doctrine, you are walking in darkness. If you don't love the brethren. And I don't care how orthodox you are. If you don't love the brethren, you're no better than the Gnostics who left the church, who John John said were never saved. They were never part of us. They were never truly Christians. They've exhibited that by their behavior, by leaving, by not loving, by leaving. If a man leaves his wife and says, well, I love my wife. I'm leaving her. Is, Is that love? No, of course not. If he loves his wife, he's going to stay there and work to have a good relationship. But if you are loving toward the brethren, it is proof you are truly a Christian living in the realm of life. Whatever rough edges you may have, whatever defects you may have, whatever areas that you need to work on, and we all need to work on areas, It shows you have the love of Christ. It shows you're imitating Christ. It shows you have the Holy Spirit. It shows you are really regenerated because of that love. This is a crucial test. This is a crucial test. Orthodoxy, of course, is absolutely essential. There is a reason that the Reformed symbols, our creeds, our confessions are so detailed and comprehensive. There's a reason for that. But orthodoxy must be accompanied by orthopraxy. Right thinking must be accompanied by right behavior. If you have the Holy Spirit, you'll have both. The true biblical religion is that we are justified and we are saved to live a holy Christian life. We are saved unto good works. We are redeemed to love the brethren. If you do not love the brethren, then you're nothing but a hypocritical swine and you are walking in darkness. Now, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back and we'll deal with the rest of our text. But I hope you see very simple stuff. It's simple. Are you keeping the commandments of God habitually? None of us do it perfectly, but habitually. If you do sin, do you confess it and repent? Two, are you working hard to imitate Christ and walk like he walked? Is he your standard? In addition to the law, because he, he, he's the living embodiment of what it means to keep the law. And then, three, are you loving the brethren every day? Do you want to go to church? Do you want to be a help? Do you want to say you can serve others in the church and help those? Maybe somebody who had a new child, or maybe an old woman who can't shovel the snow. Maybe there's an old man who needs help mowing his lawn. Maybe there's old people in an old folks' home who just want somebody to come and visit them. Are you loving the brethren? Or are you selfish? Are you just living in darkness and you don't know it? But we'll examine this further. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this, this crucial test. Help us, Lord, to have the love of Christ. Help us, Lord, to put your church first in all things, to put Christ first in all things, that we would serve the sheep and be kind and compassionate and loving like Christ, that we would work to help others, that we would work for the sanctification of the body, that we would work for its edification, not destruction, that we would work for better doctrine, more biblical worship, that we would work for helping others that need help, who may not have others that can help them, that we would step in the gap and we would help them and love them, that we would be kind and forgiving, not mean, not grumblers, not gossipers, but lovers in the same way that Jesus loved. In Jesus' name, amen.